And welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are your retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. On today's show, we remember the perennial popularity of the adventure film. Well, welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We're very happy to have you with us on on this show. We've got a great topic today. We're going to talk about the perennial popularity of the adventure film. You know, everybody remembers the Indiana Jones series that featured Harrison Ford in four different movies from 1981 to 2008. And those movies set box office records. These adventure films harken back to a golden age of movie making when adventure films enabled audiences to travel to exotic locales, search for physical evidence that affirm religious faith, or for lost treasure in finding lost civilizations. And we have George Holocos back with us again, our good friend George. And George, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you take over this this topic. You're going to talk about some great films of the past that uh, I know are some of your favorites. And uh, go ahead, take it away. Tell us about that. Well, the Indiana Jones series has been regarded, and I believe correctly so, as the gold standard of adventure films. And the reason for that, I believe, is because it embodies the very best of the past. And we can cite three classic films that have the same elements that are featured in all of the Indiana Jones films. And two of these films, of course, are rooted in classic best-selling literature, and the other one is connected to the recurring theme of finding evidence to support religious faith. And the films that I am referring to are, of course, Lost Horizon, which was released in 1937, starring Ronald Coleman and Jane Wyatt. King Solomon's Mines, released in 1950, starring Stuart Granger and Deborah Carr. And then Valley of the Kings, released in 1954, featuring Robert Taylor and Eleanor Parker. And when you look at these three films, you will see that there are parallels, similarities, and direct connections that show why the adventure film has a time-honored formula that mixes not only adventure with romance, but also it features a strong hero, a lovely lady, and also, as you noted, Gilbert, exotic, strange, and faraway places. Exactly, uh, George. And these movies, I guess they provide us, as do so many movies, the opportunity to sort of escape our world and sort of have a fantasy moment uh, for a couple hours watching a great film. Is that not right? Very much so. These three films that I've cited uh, involve very remote, isolated locales that offered a journey not only into another place, but another time. Mm-hmm. You know, Lost Horizon, for example, took us to Shangri-La, which is set in the Himalaya Mountains. And, there's a, and what that is is a lost city that seeks to preserve the very best of human civilization and the importance of treating everyone with love with respect and kindness. We look at King Solomon's Mines, that takes us to the dark reaches of Africa where our hero seeks out the diamond mines of the Old Testament figure, King Solomon. And then finally, we have Valley of the Kings. And what that does, it takes us on a search for proof of the Old Testament that Joseph was in fact in Egypt and there was a pharaoh who believed in God. Interesting thing about these films is that King Solomon's Mines and Valley of the Kings were filmed on location in Africa. 
whereas Lost Horizon was filmed entirely on a studio set. But they all were able to convey travel to very remote and isolated locales. Another aspect is that all three of these films end happily and the hero gets the girl. So, again, we see similar themes in all of the Indiana Jones films. In this case, Ronald Coleman, he returns to Shangri-La to live happily ever after with Jane Wyatt. This is before she became uh, Margaret Anderson on Father Knows Best. Uh, Stuart Granger and Deborah Carr, they end up literally walking off into the sunset, you know, in the dark reaches of Africa after having found King Solomon's Mines. And Robert Taylor and Eleanor Parker together rejoice in a quiet moment of solemnity as they find irrefutable evidence in a deep, dark, secret room of an ancient pyramid that affirms the validity of the Old Testament and the story of Joseph and the Pharaoh who believed in God. Well, George, have you analyzed the formula? You just mentioned some interesting... It seems like the common thread would be an adventure to a mystical, dreamy, fantasy-like world or experience with a love interest with a moral of a story, and as you mentioned, walking into the sunset or into the misty garden, it seems like there's a formula there. What say you on that? Is there a typical successful formula over the years of adventure productions? There certainly is. Uh, and, And what you also find that makes it successful, Mike, is that incorporated into all this to maintain a sharp tempo, All of these films are set in extremely harsh, difficult, and sometimes frightening situations that our heroes have to overcome. So there's danger. There is danger. Always danger. Always danger. And the danger is not always physical. It also involves a danger with human relationships. I mean, we know, for example, that obviously with Lost Horizon, it's in the Himalayas, which is a very isolated, cold uh, locale. Uh, King Solomon's Mines... There's hordes of reptiles and snakes and stampedes and hostile natives, all of which we saw in the Indiana Jones films. But it's interesting, there's a different kind of danger in Valley of the Kings, which we also saw in in the Indiana Jones films. And that is, you have individuals that are treacherous. There's deceit and oftentimes very hostile forces that are involved. And it really involves good versus evil, with our hero and heroine trying to maintain a focus on their goal, but at the same time having to fight off these uh, dark forces. In the Indiana Jones films, of course, we saw it in World War II uh, against uh, the Axis powers, and then later in the final film against the forces of communism. This is a, a common theme throughout. Do you have a favorite era of the adventure film genre? Mine particularly, George, is the 40s. You had such a mixed bag of adventure films, the adventure comedies, of course, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and the Road 2 series, which were adventure, comedic as it is, uh, it was adventure, high comedy and crack jokes and slapstick, but it was an adventure, and there were danger, but the 40s brought the Corsican Brothers, which was a very interesting, a lot of these adventure movies were taken off of the novels, I take it over here. Very much What so. is your favorite era of the adventure film, or is there... Do you have a favorite? I think I like the 1950s. Okay. And that's probably why two of the films that I that I looked at come from the 1950s, uh, respectively uh, the uh, 
King Solomon's Mines and Valley of the Kings, because I think it sort of reached a peak. Hmm. Because at that point, the color film technology started to really come into play, as well as the widescreen technology, and they made use of that, because these were major theatrical events. I think the other thing that comes to mind, however, is the literary connection between all of these uh, adventure films. As I noted, Lost Horizon was based on the same book and was a bestseller in the 1930s. In fact, it's the first mass market paperback that was to be published. And then, of course, we had uh, King Solomon's Mines, which was based on the same book written by H. Ryder Haggard. His character is Alan Quartermain, who is the absolute role model for the Indiana Jones film. He's strong, he's brave, but he's also very well educated. Did Stuart Granger, was he the right pick for those roles? Because you you move up to 52 and it looked like he had caught on, almost being typecast, because he, he starred in uh, Scaramouche and also Prisoner of Zenda. He did, and I think what was nice about this was that this enabled him to break out. Okay. From you know from those uh, those typecast films of the period, Good. and I think what's interesting about all of these is that there is the basis for a formula that might be the subject for another show altogether, but the concept of the sequel. You know, you look at the Indiana Jones films, and each one of those films is a freestanding film. Each one of those films can stand on its own. And yet, of course, it plays on recurring themes because there is a a timeline sequence. The first one, of course, begins with the search for the Ark of the Covenant. Then the second film involves, of course, the search for the Temple of Doom. Then we go back to uh, Christian faith with the uh, search for the Holy Grail. Then in the final film, uh, what you're able to do is come full circle. He ends up at the conclusion of the film marrying the girl that he ended up with in the very first one, 28 years before. And in this one, it involves a little bit of finding remnants of a lost civilization, but it also makes connections with the uh, UFO phenomena, Roswell, and everything else that goes with that. So the sequel owes its origin, I believe, to that. You had H. Ryder Haggard, that had a continuing series of novels involving Alan Quartermain, the other ones being She, which was also a great adventure film. Then Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold. Well, it seemed like you mentioned the 50s were your favorite. I Of the 50s, my favorite of the 50s was the year 52. It seemed like that was a big year for adventure flicks, especially sea adventures. You had Against All Flags with Errol Flynn and Maureen O'Hara. Uh, even Anthony Quinn was in that one. Blackbeard the Pirate... And then you had, you go up to the Crimson Pirate with Burt Lancaster. 52 was int- Ivanhoe, Robert Taylor. We talked about Robert Taylor before our show today. Uh, King of the Kyber Rifles, Tyrone Power. A lot of the older actors who had come up to 50s who started their careers in the 30s, it seemed like there was a convergence there where the new breed took over in the 50s. Burt Lancaster picked it up and, and moved with it. Of course, Stuart Granger and Deborah Carr. Uh, and from 1950, you mentioned uh, their movie in 50. They came back in 52 together and did those two that I'd mentioned earlier, Prisoner of Zenda and Scaramouche. But 52 is interesting. I, at any given time on a Saturday, you go to AMC or one of the old movie channels, you're going to see one of the adventure blockbusters from 52. What's interesting about all of those films, uh, uh, Mike, as you recount those particular ones from the 1950s, is that, in my mind, all of the lead characters served as positive role models. Yes. 
in that they were striving to do the right thing in all situations. And that's so very important. I think that that's what made Indiana Jones a bit different from a lot of other adventure films during the same period from the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. As we've talked about in some of our previous programs, that perhaps owing to a so-called modern-day sensibility, there's a bit of cynicism. But I don't believe there's cynicism with Indiana Jones. There's a sense of irony, perhaps, but he really is a role model. Think of it. He is not only physically strong and brave, but he has a firm foundation of what is right and wrong. He has a respect and, if not a profound faith, in a glimpse of the eternal, even though he may not fully comprehend it intellectually. And he's extremely well-educated. He's a successful professor, and he emphasizes the importance and virtues of school of hard work, of loyalty, of love, and of faith. And similarly, uh, the women that we see in all of these films, and you noted some of the great starlets of, of the different eras, they're not only beautiful, but they're brave, they're loyal, they're caring, they're kind. They're the ones that you want to see live happily ever after. And together, the common thread is they're emotionally or physically... Or spiritually, they're always at odds and fighting a war with evil in whatever form it may take in that movie or that scene. Evil is the common denominator, good over evil, right? Very much okay. so. And sometimes it's uh, somewhat subtle. As I noted in Valley of the Kings, uh, the evil that they were facing was not so much powers of darkness in the, in the form of, uh, of armies, yeah. but what you saw was treachery and deceit yes. all around you, which was evident also in the Indiana Jones films as well. Well, that was the enemy. Uh, the enemy could be a collapsing dam threatening this village of 37,000 poor, starving inhabitants, but that's still the enemy. That's the role of the breaking dam. Very much so. So there, there was a fine line in, between good and evil, or challenge and or deceit and honesty. It was. And okay. as I recall, when doing the research on Lost Horizon, I read the book titled Ronald Coleman, A Very Private Person. And I'll post it on our website because I have a copy of the first edition. But it was written by Coleman's only daughter, Juliet Coleman. And she notes that in point of fact that Messrs. Coleman, Hilton, and Capra, who produced the film actually wanted to do a sequel of Lost Horizon. And the plot line simply went like this, that having returned to Shangri-La, Ronald Coleman and his cohorts decide to go out into the world to see if they can bring forth the message of kindness, of love, of goodness. And when it becomes apparent that they will not be successful, they said, let's go back and we'll wait another thousand years and then we'll try one more time. So, unfortunately, because of Mr. Hilton's untimely passing, that sequel was never translated into film. However, I am pleased to say, for those that like the sequel concept, as shown in Indiana Jones, it did occur in the context of published literature. There was a book that was published in 1996 by a friend of mine, Eleanor Cooney, who, with her co-author, Daniel Altieri, published a book titled... Uh, Shangri-La, a, a return to the world of Lost Horizon. And what she did was that she blended the best of the film version with Ronald Coleman and the book as created by James Hilton. They updated it by bringing forth into the 1960s when the Red Chinese under Mao Zedong were engaged in uh, a method of reform and conquest of their neighbors in Tibet. And what they ended up doing was that 
the character has to leave Shangri-La and has to put himself at great risk to uh, perhaps age very quickly, but he's able to turn back the enemy and lead them down the wrong path so they don't find the lost city. That's interesting. You know, George, uh, looking at the dates of these movies, there was kind of a spread there. Lost Horizon, 1937, King Solomon's Mines and Valley of the Kings relatively close together, 1950 and 54, and of course, uh, Indiana Jones, 1981. Did this uh, uh, genre sort of, was it dormant for a while then came back, or was it kind of always there, and there were other movies that really that were sort of in this in this line, but not too notable? I would say so, but of course, don't forget, we had, at that time, uh, films that were based on historical events, such as Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, mm-hmm. The Longest Day. These were films in the 60s that were based on actual historic events, and they were regarded as major epics. Well, that is great. You know, George, we're going to come right back after the break. we got a retro-mercial. This is a good place to do the break. We've talked about the girl. We've talked about the hero, the adventurer. We've talked about the villains. We've talked about the forces of darkness. When we come back, we're going to wrap up and talk about the music, the sounds, and and the dreamy music, and the artists that created the music and the scores that brought these epics together and made them really dreamy stuff. So we're going to come right back. You are listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. We'll be right back. When Cutie Katie makes a scene, she wears a smile brush three ways clean. Cleaner breath, cleaner face, cleaner teeth, three ways clean is Colgate Clean. When Handsome Harry joins the session, he makes a real cool three way impression. Cleaner breath, cleaner taste, cleaner teeth, three ways clean is Colgate Clean. In your mouth, trouble can start with craft food particles that attract decay bacteria, producing decay acids. Colgate with activated Gardol foams as you brush, helps foam away food, decay bacteria, and decay acids. Regular Colgate brushing for most people instantly helps stop bad breath that starts in the mouth. I had the Colgate girl and boy. Brush three ways clean to both enjoy. Cleaner breath, cleaner taste, cleaner teeth. Three ways clean is Colgate clean. Help fight decay with Colgate. Three ways clean is Colgate clean. Yes, and for you avid listeners and lovers of this type of music and genre, Shangri-La is not a pizza joint on El Cajon Boulevard. It's it's a frame of mind. It was a, a beautiful, beautiful picture that was actually done twice, if not more. But you're back with Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight here on Galaxy Nostalgia Network, and the subject is the adventure movies of the past and all the way up to the future. But we're going to get right back here real quick, and we're going to talk to George, our good friend George Halalakis, some more about the music that made these pictures so poignant. George? You look at the Indiana Jones films, and one thing that immediately jumps to mind is the fantastic musical scores in Indiana Jones. How many people have heard the sequence from uh, the uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? You hear that theme music come up, and immediately you see the image of Harrison Ford brandishing that bullwhip, wearing that cap and his pistol at his side and the girl on the other. And the music is so important because it helped enhance and strengthen our memories of the vivid action sequences that made these films so much fun. 
The music is actually uh, another character in the movie, isn't it, George? Very much yeah. so. And in the case of Lost Horizon, I'm so glad you brought that up because it gives us an opportunity to pay tribute to one of the true giants in Hollywood in terms of music, and that would be Dimitri Tiomkin. Yes, absolutely. Who was also uh, a perennial contributor to all of the Frank Capra films and then later was, of course, known for his contribution to Western films. But the music that he was able to present created a, a mood of mysticism, of peace, of serenity, and yes, love. And I think that it, it reminds us the importance of the soundtrack. The soundtrack strengthens the film. It enhances the memory. And, of course, it serves to uh, bring back great memories. Yeah. That's why I think that uh, the Indiana Jones film came into being, was that there was a recognition on the part of Spielberg and Lucas that this was a film that had a great place in American film history, indeed film history in general. And here was an opportunity to bring that up to date and at the same time integrate not only the great storylines that we've talked about, the common and recurring parallel themes, but also the integration of music. And that's why John Williams, uh, who was, of course, known for his work in Star Wars, Prior to that, of course, uh, in the 1960s for the sci-fi films for Irwin Allen. But he was such a major contributor to making these films so great. So the adventure film has another side benefit or collateral benefit, which would be great music. And I believe we can also say the same thing for other adventure films of the 60s. Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia, The Longest Day. Mm -hmm. I would venture to say that any film lover... And fan of those films can also remember the haunting music associated oh. with each of those films. Absolutely. And it's it's just such a perfect surgical mix right. of the right director, the right actors, the right scenery, the right music composer. Dimitri Chomkin, he worked with Frank Capra. They worked very well together. Capra just uh, pretty much let him do whatever he wanted until they got to Lost Horizon. And they had a big argument over the one scene where... The discussion was the Dalai Lama. When a Dalai Lama dies, it is something of greatness. It is philosophically the end. And Frank Capra came back and said, no, the Dalai Lama is a very simple man. Other than a drum beat and a little finger rhythm, that's what we're going to do. And they went back and forth mm -hmm. over this. Finally, Tomkin won over. But you talk about the egos and the mentalities and the creative differences and bringing this all in together into an epic to make it real in the big screen. And it's more than a bunch of guys sitting around with scripts around a table and, sure. and having cold-cut sandwiches. It's history being made. And I think what's so wonderful about the Indiana Jones films, the legacy, is not only are those films great in and of themselves with wonderful acting, great stories, great music, but what it's done is that it pays tribute to the films that we've enumerated today. In fact, we can say that the greatness of uh, Mesher's Lucas and Spielberg is a function of them being able to stand on the shoulders of giants, the giants from this film era of the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. And a lot of these are memorable to us because we grew up with them when we're younger, George. We're very impressionable. We can remember every single frame of every scene of the movies we liked. I can almost tell you every line from the movie The Big Sky, which was one of my favorites because I just liked that time. That was an adventure movie in itself. As time goes by, we start questioning, well, are today's pictures, are they as quality produced, are, are they as memorable? They probably are, 
to a, an 11 year old who's watching it for the first time. So we are probably jaded in our opinions of what was great, what was great picture making, what was great music, what was great score, what, what was great acting. Here we are, fast forward 40 years down the road. We've seen it all. We've experienced things that we had not experienced when we were 11 years old. Therefore, we're probably not as impressionable on anything that we see or hear or do. But I, what I'm getting at, George, is today's quality of film production. Is it on par? Is it level? Uh, we have it's, Everything's digital now, so we've got the technology whipped. But is the creative, are the brain cells, what's coming out of the brain cells, out of the big brain machine, is it equivalent to the Frank Capra's, the, uh, you know, the David Lean's? I'm of two minds of this. Part of me says yes because okay. of, of the enormity and the progression of the technology. On the other hand, I look at the success of the films that we talked about earlier. Again, they were based on the popular novels. They were based on a society that really focused a lot on literature and reading. And so there's a question as to you know, what is actually being read today. And uh, a lot of these great novels and great stories that we read in school or that our parents read to us, uh, there's a great deal of variation on that in terms, and, and not the universality of that that we mm. saw in earlier generations. Some people and some households don't have an emphasis on reading. I was very blessed. I grew up mm. in a household based mm. on reading. And as did my mother, as did my father. And I would venture to say your parents as well. Yes. But that's not always the case now in this video and computerized revolution where you can access so much. On the other hand, though, I would say that with the uh, proliferation of these e-readers, we're actually now finding perhaps a new generation that are rediscovering these books uh, and their ability to access all of these great libraries through the digitized format, and you can get all of these books word for word exactly as we had them as children uh, in digitized form right there, uh, you know, in the palm of your hand. That's and, very interesting to know. Yeah, and so my, my, my belief is I have uh, the son of a, of, a, of, a very, of a lifelong friend who is preparing to enter film school. He uses all this digital technology, and he's starting to read a lot of these books. So my goal and my thought is for him is that if he's able to appreciate the best of the past, he'll be able to incorporate it with the best of what is going on now. And who knows? And you mentioned film school. I, I know that there's a, a movement coming back, especially film school students and a lot of the independents, to go back to film and learn what it took to have 100-foot spools of film, and that's it, and no retakes and no rewind mm -hmm. and erase. You had a certain amount of budget for film that day you had to shoot your film you had to get the lighting right you did not know what you had till you got back to the processing unit and that's coming back too it is i think that's a good too. thing it is george before we end our show we're almost out of time but you're going to give us a couple of uh, pictures that we're going to post on our website yes what i would like to do is uh post for you a copy of the uh first edition of the only biography ever written on ronald coleman as i noted earlier it was authored by his own daughter, Juliet Coleman. It was published in 1975, and it has incredible insights into Lost Horizon, including, by the way, the lost scenes that are that no longer exist in motion picture form, but have been reinserted with still pictures. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also going to post an um, autographed photo of Claudine Pearson, who is a supporting actress, and it's with Robert Taylor on location in Cairo, Egypt, while 
in full costume for Valley of the King. So I'm going to share that with all of you, well, that's, that's our great. wonderful audience yes, out there. Yes, that's great, George. Thank you. And we're going to go ahead and post that uh, on our website. In fact, when you're listening to the show, you should be able to go to our website or to our Facebook page, and you'll be able to see that there. Mike? And you know what? That's going to do it for this episode. We're getting in some great shows here lately. We're getting a little more in-depth. Uh, some of you listeners who started back in, in uh, episode one and two, we danced around a bit and covered a lot of things. We're developing into a little more in-depth in our stories, and we have to thank in a great part to our good friend George Halalakos and Absolutely. even Mike Zaccaro and a few of the guys who know this stuff so well. Really, yours truly, Smitty and I, about all we can do is get a few key paragraphs and, and get some. <laughs> but we get a guy like George in here, and you can get down to the grassroots of, of whatever it is we're featuring on any given show. And we got a lot more shows coming up in 2012. we got some great stuff. And we really sincerely thank you, listeners, for your support. Uh, either support by listening or support by sending us your emails or support by passing the word around and sending the links around because we're able to tell the increase in listeners by our download traffic. And we are about ready to sign off, but let me remind you again on behalf of my buddies here at Galaxy Moonbeam that we are available at galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com. Remember, that's S-I-T-E, galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com. Our email is galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail. Keep those emails coming. That helps fuel future productions and segments and ideas. And if you don't like something, tell us about it. We don't get many of those. How could you not like us? Maybe? That's right. That's right. We're lovable. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, we do try and update everything. Uh, we're still trying to get the hang of the Facebook and the uh, keeping our website up and running and current and fresh, but we do have scans there. But we have a Facebook page at facebook.com, Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site. And you can check our Facebook, become our friend. We'll keep you in touch with stuff that's going on as it happens. And so that is going to be a wrap for this show. I am Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. And we'll be talking to you again very soon right here on Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.